Hey friends, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, a collection of sermons and lectures from Kevin Morris to help you learn different Bible study and theology topics. Today's episode is a segment dealing with the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment from the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. We're going to be sharing a a handful of recordings uh, dealing with this book, and I want to highly recommend it to you because contentment is an issue that is totally off the radar in our modern society, especially in the aftermath and in some places uh, the ongoing reality of a pandemic and dealing with political unrest and all the things that are happening in our world today. The idea of contentment is needed more than ever. And in fact, it's needed in a way that qualifies what contentment is for the Christian, how it is a gift from God, how it is a work of the Holy Spirit in us, how it is an inward state of our heart. All of these things Jeremiah Burroughs deals with in great detail. And the book, as a collection of his sermons transcribed, are very readable for you. And the applications that he gives are just world-class, in my opinion. And so I hope that this is really helpful to you, uh, even if this is an introduction to this man and to the idea of Christian contentment. I hope that it blesses you greatly and gets your appetite going to be living as a Christian, dependent upon God, but content both in what he calls us to do and in what he does. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. Burroughs is trying to have us, in our minds, place the idea of contentment, the reality of contentment, in a Christian worldview context. The only way that we can do that is when we recognize that there is something of contentment that is mysterious. It's so mysterious that the world sees it as foreign to them. You see this language used quite often in the New Testament especially, that talks about Christians as aliens, talks about Christians as having their citizenship in heaven. Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world, and we are part of that kingdom, therefore we are not part of this world in the sense of belonging. And that means that our day in and day out activities, our mindset, the way that we approach life, the way that we interact with all the things that are contrary or antithetical to contentment is really what sets us apart from the rest of the world. Everybody tries to find some sense of contentment, but the question is where the source is and what you do to get there. And that's what sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. So his first point, number eight, is that the Christian lives upon the due of God's blessing. I found that this point, number eight, was probably very inspirational of Jonathan Edwards. So to give a little bit of timeline here, those living roughly here, living a hundred years or so before Jonathan Edwards. And so you can see Jonathan Edwards and all of those who come in his time frame, and you have John Newton and all the others who are predecessors of Burroughs. But one of the things that's said so much about Jonathan Edwards in his sermons and the way he writes his books 
is that one of his favorite words to describe Christianity and the idea of union with Christ is sweetness. And you see that phrase no less than six times just in point number eight of contentment being a mystery. I'm going to read them to you just really quickly. Uh, So my argument here is that Burroughs really gave Edwards all of his sweetness language. And so he says this, uh, if you would come to them and say, how comes it that you live so comfortably as you do? They are not able to tell you what they have, but they find there is a sweetness in what they do enjoy. And they know this by experience, that they never had such sweetness in former times, that though they had more plenty in former times than now they have, yet they know they had not such sweetness. But how this comes, they cannot tell. And again, we're, we're really taking contentment according to the world, contentment according to the Bible, according to Christians, and we're seeing that they're not like this, they're like this. And that's really what he's doing. He's driving that point home in each and every one. Contentment is a mystery because contentment is a Christian seeing God's love in affliction. Again, he, he throws in that, that word sweet. The ninth thing wherein the mystery of Christian contentment consists is this. Not only the good things that he has, he has the dew of God's blessing in them, and they are very sweet to him, but all the afflictions, all the evils that do befall him, he can see love in them all, and can enjoy the sweetness of love in his afflictions, as well as in his mercies. Yet the truth is, the now listen to this, the truth is the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love, that Jesus Christ did come from. That is in one ear and out of the other to the world. The source of afflictions is the same source to where Jesus came, and that is the love of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So God's gesture of love is to send his Son. God's gesture of love is also to send afflictions with the same level of intensity, with the same level of origin. That's what he's saying here. That is not something that the world can comprehend in any way, shape, or form. Yes? Hebrews 12. Yeah. Yeah, good good point. So another thing I really appreciated is he talks about the the idea of of grace working in us to see this. It it is a thing of grace for us to recognize afflictions as um, coming from the source of love from God. It says, Grace gives a man an eye, even in his afflictions, to see the love of God in every affliction as well as in his prosperity. this This is a very, very short, this is not even a full page long, uh, a very short point. But what he's saying is we can also fall into a distortion of this. I I have two uh, concepts here that I want to touch on. Uh, The first is the idea that we think that Christian virtue is suffering. You actually saw this happening a lot in the early church to where you were actually recognized to be a better Christian if you suffered martyrdom. And for some, they actually sought out martyrdom 
because it was kind of a stamp that they were an authentic Christian. And so you have, on the one hand, Christians thinking that the blessing of God is found only in affliction and suffering. And then you have those on the other side who would say that affliction is in every way, shape, and form antithetical to God's blessing. Point number 10, his affliction, contentment is a mystery because his affliction, that is for the Christian, is sanctified in Christ. This one is, again, um, very fascinating because he says that he sees them, that is his afflictions, sanctified in Jesus Christ, sanctified as a mediator. He sees, I say, all the sting and venom and poison of them all to be taken out by the virtue of Jesus Christ, the mediator betwixt God and man. As now, for instance, thus a Christian, when he would have contentment, falls a-working. What is my affliction? Is it poverty that God strikes me with? And then he mentions it could be poverty, it could be discouragement, it could be being dishonored. And his point in all of it is that the way that our afflictions are sanctified in Christ is that God takes out, if you will, the evil intent that is found in these circumstances that the world experiences and puts in their place the sanctification of Christ so that things that should seem like they destroy us are actually used for our good and for God's glory. That's one of the sticking points when it comes to a reformed understanding of evil in the world and particularly evil that Christians experience. Evil that we don't escape from, but evil that we experience. And the argument from the world is, we'll see God's the author of evil, or see God isn't making good on his word. You have all these emphatic promises in the Bible, and yet all you Christians are suffering. Your spouse is beheaded because they're a believer, and God didn't stop that from happening. And all, all these examples, right? And the Christian view, and especially the Reformed view, <clears throat> is that while God does ordain all that comes to pass, His ordaining all of those things is only ever for good and His glory. There's no evil intent in God's plans. He will bring it all to a right and justified end. But at the same time, even as He allows things to happen to us, which we experience on this side of glory, God only ever has good intentions for those. And because that is true, they're, as Burroughs says, they're sanctified in Christ. He takes the venom, he takes the poison, he takes the sting out of them. They're still afflictions, but because they've been sanctified by Christ, we can rejoice in them because God has good intentions and good purposes in them. And his example of this is, of course, where you should go, by the way, when anybody um, has an argument against the fact that you're a Christian and all these bad things are happening to you. His argument is, look to Jesus Christ. The only person who never deserved anything bad to ever happen to him suffers the greatest injustice in human history. He is despised and ridiculed more than anybody ever has been because Everything that anybody ever had to say about him in the negative sense was justified at all. 
Now for us, people can ridicule us, people can um, disrespect us, and regardless of how off base they are, because we have a history of sin, somewhere in those insults there's probably a nugget of truth. But that's not the case with Christ at all. And so in his injustices that he suffered, none of them were validated, and yet he endured them for our sake. But he didn't endure them for our sake so that we would just walk scot-free and never have to endure them. Instead, the Bible actually gives us a different answer to that. And I'm going to read two of them for you. Uh, The first one is Hebrews 4.15. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. Hebrews 4.15 tells us concerning Jesus, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we will not have a time of need if we're not going to go through things. We will not be in need of God's grace if we're going to suffer something that we can overcome in and of ourselves. And yet, those things are qualified by the fact that Jesus went through all those things to relate to us, to sympathize with us, but not so that we don't ever have to, but actually because of the very fact that we will have to. That's the point in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Same thing is said to us by the Apostle John in 1 John. It says this concerning Jesus in 1 John 2, 6. He says, actually, you know, I'm going to pick it up for the sake of context. I'm going to pick it up here in number 4. Verse number 4 of 1 John 2, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, the way that Jesus walked, of course the first application there is he never sinned. So that's the... uh, That's the main point that John's making is we should walk as he walks because he never sinned. Therefore, we should never give in to sin, even though we will. He admits this. We will, but we never have an excuse to. But the other part of that is we walk the same way Jesus did in the sense of enduring persecutions, enduring temptations. One of the greatest temptations that we overlook is to give in during persecution, to give in during affliction, to compromise our Christian witness. Jesus never did, therefore we don't ever have an excuse to, and we actually have the means to never give in because we have that throne of grace to draw near to. Okay, One other uh, point he makes here is, well, we can go to the next portion because it actually uh, correlates to it pretty well. So number 11, that's... His segue, okay? So he says that afflictions are sanctified in Christ. And then he says, in contentment being a mystery, it is that Christians fetch their strength from Christ. So there's his transition of the the second part of Hebrews 4.15 and 16 that we draw near to the throne of grace. 
So we're fetching our strength from Christ. Contentment is a mystery that we fetch our strength from Christ. Listen to how he says that we do this. Now, I want to, again, be an advocate for the way that we uh, have worship and the way that our church is, is ordered. There is yet a further mystery. This is on page 66. There is yet a further mystery. For this, I hope you will find a very useful point unto you, and you will see what a plain way there is before we have done. For one that is skilled in religion to get contentment, though it is hard for one that is carnal. I say, the eleventh mystery in contentment is this. A gracious heart has contentment by fetching strength from Jesus Christ. He is able to bear his burden by fetching strength from another. This makes me think of several things, but again, just if we can play on the Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, the first half of that is that our afflictions are sanctified in Christ. Jesus is our high priest. He's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he suffered just as we have yet without sin. And then the proper response to that is, let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and help in time of need. There's that fetching our strength from Christ. We draw near to the grace of God. Now that brings about a very important question. Where is God's grace to be found? Or we could say, how do we get it? What are the means of grace, to use Presbyterian language? And of course the answer is very much at the front and center of what we're doing right now. We're gathering together in corporate worship to hear the word of God preached, prayer, the sacraments. Those are God's ordinary means of grace. We fetch strength from Christ, to use Burroughs' language, by clinging to the means that God has ordained where his grace can be found, where he gives us grace. And that's not the only place that we find God's grace, but that's his primary. His primary means of of grace is in the gathering of the saints and what the saints are supposed to be gathered in doing, the word, prayer, and sacraments. I think that's what he's actually touching on here when he says somebody is skilled in religion. Now, I want to jump really quickly to our confession to show you um, the way that that kind of correlates. Um, In our confession of faith in chapter number 17, chapter number 17 speaks of the perseverance of the saints. And one of the ways it talks about the perseverance of the saints by way of warning is that, I'm going to just read this here for you. Nevertheless, they may, this is after all of the encouragements, by the way. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan, so you have to be skilled in the way God has designed the Christian life to be lived in order to get contentment. And another way to say that in very, very clear terms is fetching your strength from Christ. That's, that's his point. We fetch our Christ. He says, a Christian finds satisfaction in every condition by getting strength from another, by going out of himself to Jesus Christ, and by faith acting upon Christ, and bringing the strength of Jesus Christ into his own soul, and thereby is enabled to bear whatsoever God lays upon him by the strength that he finds from Jesus Christ. 
Anybody have a Bible verse that you think of when you hear that? Of course, you see me turning, so you know that I have one. Let me, I'll tell you what mine is. <clears throat> Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The comfort of that is Jesus says for us to come to him and he'll give us rest. If we have a heavy burden on us, to, to think about Pilgrim's Progress here, right? The burden on, on Christian's back. He needs relief from the burden, so he goes to Christ to find relief from his burden and get it off of his back. But then the uh, way of uh, overview here, remember his first seven points that he made were in the last sermon. So now points 8 through 13 are in this sermon, uh, which was, uh, the way contentment is a mystery is that the Christian lives upon the dew of God's blessing. A Christian sees God's love in affliction. The Christian's affliction is sanctified in Christ. The Christian fetches strength from Christ. And now, number 12, the Christian makes up his wants in God. Or to say it in modern day, he makes up what he is lacking. He makes up what he doesn't have in God. God is able, I like this, God is able to let out a great deal of his power in little things. There is in a pearl a deal of love. So it's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of quality. God gives us, going back to James 1.17, every good and perfect gift. The gifts that you get from God are always good and perfect. We could also uh, apply that to our prayers. Every answer to our prayers from God is good and perfect. Why is that? Because the Spirit intercedes for us. We're going back to Romans 8 here. The Spirit intercedes for us, and God interprets our prayers as, number one, what we really should be asking because we don't know how to ask perfectly, and number two, what the proper response to our prayers, the proper way to answer them, and that is always according to God's character, good and perfect in their gifts. <clears throat> so, the point he's making here is that we may not have much. We may not have what the other person does. We may not even have the direct answer to what we were wanting in our prayer. But the thing that God gives, whether it be big or small, is precious, perfect, because it comes from God himself, who is the giver of every good and perfect thing. Now, listen to this. But when all is gone... <clears throat> There is an art and skill that godliness teaches to make up their losses in God. A gracious man does not off from the stream. He knows how to go to the fountain and make up all there. God is while he lives. I say it is God that is in all. In all. Another quote he makes, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Lamentation. 324. Augustine was, was famous in his confessions for, for many quotes, but probably the main one that everybody knows of, because if you've at least tried to read the confessions and haven't made it all the way through, you've at least made it through the first few pages where you saw his quote, which has been coined again and again, our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. 
that idea is really at the heart of, not, not to throw in a pun there, this is the heart of what we're talking about here, in that a Christian finds contentment in God alone. 